0: we can know that you are God. Pray that we are faithful to worship you at all times and in all things, no matter what occurs. Paul reminds us that not only in everything should we be rejoicing and thankful, but for everything as well. We recognize that you do the things that you do in our lives with the sole purpose of drawing us closer to you, to helping us to renew our dependence upon you. And so that's what we ask this morning. You would help us to do that. And now as we open the scripture together as well, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that we would hear your voice today, that we would know what it is that you would want us to hear and to learn, that we might apply it to our lives to more faithfully serve you. We thank you for meeting with us here this morning, and we trust that you will speak to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. I realized that this morning with the different uh, starting with the announcement about Turkey and all those other things that I didn't, I don't know if I welcomed you, if you're a guest with us here this morning, or this is your first time coming to Mossbrook Church, we want to welcome you, and I will just say this. Uh, You don't know this if this is your first time here because you don't know how things work around here or how things have gone for the last 20 years, but if this is your first Sunday and you plan on sticking around, if you can make it through the next three weeks, you'll be here for the rest of your life. Uh, (laughs) Between fire alarms this morning and uh, we have two more Sundays after today here in this place and then we're moving again. Somebody told me for the fifth time in five years the other day, that sounds about right. Uh, And uh, we'll be giving you more details about that tomorrow, or next week. Uh, We've got, I was going to say we've got it all worked out. Uh, What have we got? Half of it worked out? Yeah, we probably got half of it worked out, and the other half will be worked out in the next two weeks, trust us. So uh, we'll give you some more details about that as we get going. But again, if you're a guest here, I thought maybe I'd start this service off, uh, or this message off in a way to get your attention too. We're going to talk about death this morning, so it's all lining up, it's all coming together as a good welcome to Mossbrook uh, Sunday for you. (laughs) Life expectancy here in the United States is 76.4 years now. I realized when I thought about saying that, I don't want to make anybody extra nervous this morning because some of you are probably a little closer to that than I am this morning. Uh, That's purely an average, okay? But 76.4 years, every year we know that 3.5 million people in the United States die, That's about 1%. There are 330-some million people in the United States, and every year, 3.5 million of them die. Now, if you have been around here for a while, you know, guys, how I know know how I like my stats. And so I want to give you a few this morning. The number one leading cause of death in the United States, does anybody know what it is? Heart disease. 700,000 people in the, in the U.S. die every year because of heart disease. The number two cause of death, cancer. 600,000 people die of cancer every year here in the United States. Now, I'm not going to run down through all the rest of them, but there were a couple that I thought were very interesting. Every year, 7,000 people in the United States die because of messy handwriting in doctor's notes. So, if you ever wondered how people could read what those doctors write, well, apparently sometimes they can't. Um, the possibility that you will die in a vending machine accident is low, but it's never zero. Thirteen people die every year in the U.S. because of a vending machine accident. So, Josh, stay out of the vending machines when you're at work and you need that snack, a little sugar boost, stay away from the vending machines. Uh, Twelve people die every year from shark attacks here in the United States. Every day around the world, 150,000 people die. I found out that the oldest living person in the world right now is a lady who lives in Spain. She is 116 years old, if you can imagine. Now, if I was going to live to be 116, that would mean I'm not even halfway there yet. I'm perilously close to halfway, but I'm not quite halfway there yet. So the most verifiable stat of all, this is the last stat, the most verifiable stat of all is that every single person in the history of the entire world who was born before 1907 has died. In fact, we know that every person dies eventually. It's a fact of life. It's the most difficult fact of life, I think, to deal with the pain and the grief and the loss of losing someone that we love. Solomon was the one who made that very clear to us that every person dies, right? In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, do you know that passage? He said, for everything in life, there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die. Now today is week 20 in our study of the book of Hebrews. We're halfway home. those 40 weeks in the study and we're on week 20 tonight or today. We're looking to Jesus. We're focusing on him and his deity and his power and his holiness and his position above all. And for the last few weeks, his work as our high priest before God. And this morning from Hebrews chapter 9, as you may well imagine, we're going to talk about Death. And as uncomfortable as that makes us, we need to talk about death because it is a part of life and because it is unavoidable, but we're also going to talk about hope and we're going to talk about the brilliant future that we have when we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person on earth will face death. That means that for every one of us, our eternity hangs in the balance, and so we have to ask ourselves, where does our eternity hang? What are we trusting? What are we counting on to ensure our eternity? So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to start reading in Hebrews 9 and verse 15. We're going to go down through the end of the chapter I know Tim always complains that I give him the long passages, but I got a long passage today, so he just likes to complain a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. This is what the writer says, Therefore he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. We know that, don't we? Nod your head if you know that. Even if you didn't know that, if you've been here the last few weeks, you should know that and I'm sure you're sitting here thinking that's all we've talked about for the last month month. So yes, we know that. And I want you to notice here how the writer describes what Christ has done for us as the mediator of this new covenant. Because he died on the cross for us, he says we have this eternal inheritance. Now I want you to just lock this in if you can. If you have a little bit of spare brain space this morning that you can latch on to, lock in this. That when he talks about our eternal inheritance, he's not just talking about the fact that it is unending. We know that's what eternal means, right? It means unending. But it's not just unending. It also means that it has a certain quality to it. In other words, eternal life will not just be long, it will be good. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in about 25 minutes. So why do we have it? Well, he says here in this first verse of our passage that we have this inheritance because a death has occurred. Jesus has died. And as he died, he redeemed us. That is, he ransomed us. He bought us back. So we're redeemed by the death of Christ. Redemption is another way to talk about salvation, okay? But I want you to notice this before we move on to the next verse. It says the death has occurred, but notice what it also says. It redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So if you've been here and you're kind of tracking with what we're talking about, what I want you to see is that Christ's death was retroactive. Now who is he writing the book of Hebrews to? If you've been here, you know this. We've talked about it. Who's he writing it to? He's writing it to Jews, right? Hebrews. Hebrews is another term for Jews. And the Jews are listening to this And they're wrestling with their salvation. Some of them are saved and some of them are are sure of their salvation, but others of them are questioning. They don't know, can I I fully rely on Christ? Can I fully trust in him? And of course, we've drawn practical applications of that from, from that for us as well in our trust of Christ. But these Jews are looking at it and the writer is saying the old covenant is gone. We don't need the old covenant anymore. Christ came and brought this new one. And these Jews are sitting here thinking, okay, if this is true, if this is true that Christ is everything and the old covenant is gone, then what about our ancestors, right? What about all the Jews that lived before Christ? What about all the Jews that came to the temple and gave those sacrifices and, and came to the priests? Are they lost? What the writer is saying to us here is that those Old Testament believers looked ahead to Christ in faith like we look back in faith. Are there any of you here this morning that were there when Christ died and saw him come out of the tomb? Anyone? Yeah? No. You weren't. Remember the first stat? See, stats are your friends. Everyone born before 1907 has already died. None of us were there. How do we know? How do we know that Christ went to the cross? How do we know that he rose again? How do we know that he provided our salvation? Faith, right? We look back in faith. We read in God's word. The Holy Spirit opens our hearts and our minds so that we can understand it. And we look back in faith. What the writer is here telling us is that those Jews looked ahead in faith. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, God is talking to Abraham about what he is going to do and all the promises that he is going to give him. And Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Salvation is only through Christ. The Old Testament believers looked ahead in faith. We look back in faith. That's what he's saying here. Look at verse 16. For where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. The word will here, if you're a Bible, the translation that you're looking at says will, mine does, it's the same word as the word covenant that we've been using here. Many times we've talked about what the Jews expected in a Messiah, not just in this study, but for years we've talked about this and we've tried to help you understand that the Jews were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and rescue them. Because for hundreds of years they had been in bondage, they'd been in slavery. If you go all the way back in the New Testament, you read that the Philistines defeated them and took them into slavery. And later, the Babylonians came through and defeated Israel and took, all of the, took a bunch of them off to be slaves. Have you ever heard the stories of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That was the Babylonians. They hauled them off to Babylon and enslaved them. And then later, the Persians defeated the Babylonians and inherited Israel as slaves. And now when this is being written, when the New Testament was written, the Roman Empire was in full swing and Israel was under the thumb of Rome. And so when... Their priests and their rabbis got up in the synagogues to preach about the Messiah. They were looking for someone who was going to ride in on a horse with a sword and was going to defeat the Romans and free them and save them. That's what they were looking for. They really struggled with the concept of a dying Messiah even though God was showing them the necessity of death from Adam and Eve all the way up through the law. Remember a couple of weeks ago, if you are here, remember the telescope? Remember the fact that God was consistently and, and consecutively revealing more and more things so they could understand more and more all the way from Adam and Eve when they sinned? What did God do? He took animals and he killed the animals and he gave them skins to wear to cover them. All the way up through the law and all the sacrifices, but it still made no sense to many of them. What the writer is telling us here, and what God was trying to tell the Israelites, was that a covenant demands death. Now, that's not so different from our modern wills, is it? I have a will. In my will, it states that if something happens to me, everything that I own goes to my wife. If my wife and I both die, everything that we own goes to our son. We have one son, so he's going to inherit it all. My vast empire (laughs) will be his. But he can't get his little hands on even a dime of it now. You know why? because I'm not dead, (laughs) because I'm still alive. A will is only a piece of paper until the one who holds the will dies. And the writer is trying to help them to understand this. For thousands of years, God had been making promises to Israel of all that he would do for them, but they were all, or they had all been in covenant. They were unfulfilled. And the Jews had to trust God because nothing had happened yet. Why? Because the Messiah had not died, Jesus had not died. That's part of the reason why in the Old Testament God revealed himself in so many ways. I've been asked many times, and maybe you haven't asked me, but maybe you've, mentioned, maybe you've thought about this. Maybe you've read the Old Testament and you've seen that, that God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And you've seen that God took on the form of an angel. Jesus Christ took on the form of an angel and appeared to Abraham and told him that he and Sarah were going to have a child. And later we read that God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. The bush was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And Moses knew it was God and he took off his shoes because he knew it was holy ground. And God spoke to Israel as they wandered through the wilderness with a pillar of fire during the day and a pillar of smoke at night so they would know where they were going. Have you ever wished that God would just show up and walk in front of you so that you would know where you were going? He did that in the Old Testament. And he parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could go across. And he flattened the walls of Jericho. And he saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a fiery furnace and Daniel from a lion's den. He spoke in all those ways. But that's not necessary now. If you've ever wondered, why doesn't God do that? It's not necessary. And if you've been here since week one of our study in Hebrews, you know that. But some of you haven't been. And some of you that were can't remember. So I'm going to refresh your memory. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. How did this entire book start? Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, is more excellent than theirs. See it all coming together? See these nine chapters all coming together? Isn't it exciting? Isn't it all making sense? It's all clicking. All the synapses in your brain are firing. You're like, finally, I understand what he's talking about. Clearly, that's not happening, or I would see something something totally different out here. Jesus hadn't died. The will hadn't taken effect. The new covenant hadn't kicked in. And so God spoke to them in many different ways why to assure them that he was God. He doesn't need to do that anymore because Jesus has come and has shown us God. Has died on the cross for us, provided our salvation and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Look at verse 18. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the temple, saying, or and the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. I know some of this is confusing to us because we're not entrenched in that Jewish culture. But we're learning something important here. Not only does a covenant demand death, but forgiveness demands blood. Blood is symbolic of death. The sacrifice of the animals was symbolic and prophetic, and the first covenant had to be ratified by blood. Uh, Tim mentioned last week the tabernacle for us. That was the temporary place that the Israelites worshipped in as they wandered in the wilderness before they found their, settled in their land finally and built a temple. And when they dedicated the tabernacle, Moses took blood and he sprinkled it on all the implements, the altar and the basin and the candlestick and all of the things in the tabernacle were sanctified with blood. Again, it's the same reason why God gave Adam and Eve skins of animals to clothe themselves. Because blood had to be shed to cover their sin. If you've ever read the story of Cain and Abel and wondered why Cain with his beautiful fruits and vegetables was rejected and Abel was accepted with the sacrifice of the lamb, it's for that reason. There had to be blood shed. Verse 22, indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. It's why commonly we say that Christ's blood cleanses us from sin. His shed blood means death. His death for us, it was substitutionary and sacrificial. And since the penalty for sin is death, nothing but death can atone for it. Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices from these. The copies, he's referring to the tabernacle and the temple, those things that were part of the old covenant. He said if those things had to be sanctified with blood, imagine what the real covenant must need. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He says the real thing, the new covenant needs a better sacrifice, and the better sacrifice is Christ, is Jesus. And he didn't walk into a temple to offer the sacrifice. He didn't walk into the tabernacle to offer the sacrifice. He re-entered heaven into the literal presence of God to offer his sacrifice. Now you tell me, do you think that's better? Do you think Jesus offering himself in the presence of God is better than a priest offering a lamb on a stone altar? Yes, of course it is. To save us, to intercede for us. Some of you are thinking, man, we have heard this already. (laughs) We've learned this already. Talk about something else. As I read this passage this week, I wondered this. Why do you suppose the writer keeps repeating this thought? Why does he keep coming back to this concept that Christ is our sacrifice, that he died for us, that he intercedes for us? Why does he keep doing that? Could it be that it's incredibly important? Could it be that it's in fact the most important factor In you and I living the Christ-centered life? Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His sacrifice was better, not just because he offered himself, but because it was once for all. Can you imagine over and over and over? You know how old that would get? Bringing the sacrifice, dragging the lamb every Sunday, going out to the pen, getting the lamb, going into the cage, getting the dove, bringing it, watching the priest kill it, spread the blood on the altar, burn it over and over and over, thousands and thousands of times. But Christ, once for all, put away our sin. In one act, he did what what no other sacrifice could do. Now, once again, my friends, why is this so important? Why does he keep saying this? I want you to read the next verse. See the next verse with me as I read it for you. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Why is it so important that Christ did this for us and that he did it once for all? Well, because your death and my death has already been appointed. The word appointed there means reserved, it means laid away. I am sorry to tell you this, but if you didn't know it already, you should have. Your death has been determined. you will die. Now, I don't know when that is. I don't know when it's going to be. It could be 30 years from now. It could be 30 minutes from now. I don't know. But I want you to understand this, that this word appointed means the end of what was and leading to what's next. Now what does the verse say is next after we die? What comes next? Read it. <laughs> I know you don't want to read it, do you? <laughs> after we die comes judgment. Do you know why it is so important that you and I understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave to provide our salvation, and he did that once for all, and he is standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I every single moment of every single day. You know why that's important? Because after you and I die comes judgment, and we don't know when that's going to be. Now, some of you may have even come from a Catholic background, but if you do not, you may be aware of something called last rites. It is incredibly important to Catholics that when they are dying a priest comes and gives them their last rites. Why? Because they want to make sure that whatever sins they have committed since the last time they confessed are forgiven so that they will be accepted into heaven. You know what I am so thankful for, my friends? I don't have to live my life that way because I know that Christ died on the cross how many times? Once for all, and my sin is put away. It's gone. It's done. And if I die today before I get to my car in the parking lot, I know that Christ is standing at the right hand of the Father ready to welcome me into his kingdom. Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. We looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago. Look at verse 28. I promise you that we'd have a little hope this morning. Well, that was a little hope that I just gave you, but how about some more? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's more hope for us, my friends. In the middle of all this talk about death, The first time he came, he came to deal with sin. That's why he was born in the stable, so that he might live and die, that we might be saved. But the writer here tells us that he's coming again. He is appearing a second time. How many people who know and love Christ here this morning knew he was coming again? I hope you did. And if you don't, you know now. He's coming again, but he's not coming to deal with sin. He's already done that. Why is he coming? He's coming to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. You're like, wait a second. You've been telling us for weeks that once we're saved, we're already always saved. I thought I was saved when I trusted Christ. Why is he coming again to save me? Well, Surely our destiny is sure when we trust Christ. If you have trusted Christ this morning, my friends, you are saved. But I am guessing that your present experience, like mine, leaves much to be desired. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Of that I have no doubt When I die or Christ returns, I will be in his presence. I am convinced of that. I don't doubt it for one second, but I'll tell you what, there are still some things in this world that I wouldn't mind being saved from. And that's what he's talking about here. When Christ returns, he is going to save us fully and finally and completely. You see, my friend, you will face death. You will die. That is an unavoidable fact of life. The question is, are you ready for it? question is, on what does your eternity hang? You see, God created this world so he sets the rules. The soul that sins must die. The soul that is saved will be saved by the sacrifice of Christ. Can you now understand why he keeps emphasizing the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ in his position at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He does that because there are three items on your calendar. Three things. Death, judgment, and eternity. I hope you're not still trying to appease God by the way that you live. Tim referred to that a little bit last week. I can't tell you how many times I talk with someone who I know is a believer in Christ, who has professed it, who is living it, and we're talking, and they'll be talking about something, and they'll say, boy, I sure hope he lets me in when I get there. I hate hearing that. I hate that. That's promised to us, my friends. You don't have to hope He lets you in when you get there because it doesn't depend on you. If you've repented of your sin and trusted Christ and acknowledged that you need Him, then you are saved once for all. It's done. Your destiny is sure. But in the meantime, we have to ask ourselves how are we living? Are we, as verse 28 says? eagerly waiting for him? Are you eagerly waiting for Christ to return, to come back, to take you to be with himself? Are you anxious for it? That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the life that you have. God has given you this life, and I think he wants you to enjoy it. He desires that. He intends it. But as we also endure the pain of this life and its difficulties and its suffering, we can know that we have hope that the best is yet to come can i challenge you this morning not to hold on to this life too tightly i've talked to some believers who've said i love my life and and i love my family and and i don't know but i not i don't, don't want to sit around on a cloud all day and sing worship choruses that sounds boring Listen folks. If you love this life, imagine how good life will be in eternity when we are living it as God intended, free from sin and free from pain and free from death. Remember what I said eternal life means, what eternal eternal inheritance means. It's not just long, it's good. And it's not just good, it's best. Death is an unavoidable fact of life. But after death, real life begins. You know what? We can't even begin to imagine or understand what God has in store for us. But what do we know from this passage? What do we know from the last three chapters of Hebrews? That at the right hand of God stands our Savior, interceding for us now, ready to welcome us when we get there. Father, we are so thankful this morning that you are the unchanging one, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that our eternity depends upon you thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ for his sacrifice and thank you that he is standing at the right hand of your throne at this moment interceding for us we look forward to the day when Christ returns when he comes back to save us fully and finally and completely from this world thank you for the life that you have given us but we thank you more than anything for the life that is to come In the meantime, Father, would you give us the grace and the strength that we need to live in the light of that freedom that we have in Christ and to share that good news with others. Thank you for meeting with us today here, Father. We're so grateful for this place and the opportunity to worship together. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. I hope you have a great week.